Hi all, Thomas here. Just a quick disclaimer. Now, most of you will probably know that the show was on hiatus for quite a while. During that hiatus, I wasn't doing nothing for the show. Where I could, I was working on some episodes. And one of the series that I worked on was one called Technology, Inequality and Catastrophic Risks. And it brings together some of the themes that we've talked about in this show, how technology will influence society, how we can respond to global catastrophic risks. Um, These episodes were scripted before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've decided that the best way to deal with this is to just release them as they were um, without modifying anything or changing them now. And then at the end, I will look at how some of these predictions and uh, influences and ideas might relate to our current situation. Um, So what you're getting really is a snapshot of a year or so ago when I first started working on these. And uh, hopefully, you know, you find it enlightening and can enjoy it. Okay. Consider other types of technological utopia. Futurist James Burke and others talk about a device called the Nanofabricator. Now this is a really sort of sci-fi device, but the idea here is that you have the ultimate 3D printer, a device that can rearrange substances on the molecular level. Then, according to these futurists, all you need is raw materials. A lump of dirt here for the carbon, some air, a few trace metals, a little energy to power the nanobots or whatever you have rearranging these molecules, and you can have more or less anything you want. After all, at its very basic form, what is food? What is a laptop? What is anything? It's a particular arrangement of atoms. Now, obviously, this is a massive oversimplification and tells you very little about how difficult it is to actually fabricate anything you want in practice. Paintings are just a particular arrangement of paint. This observation doesn't make me Van Gogh. But one can imagine that, in principle, there's very little that stops you from scanning a thing, developing a blueprint, and then using small machines to construct it. And if the cost of such a machine becomes affordable, if the cost of energy to produce something like this becomes affordable, then suddenly you've essentially done for material possessions what the internet has done for a lot of information. They're liberated. And in such a world, you can imagine that there might be quite incredible abundance of things. The value of manufactured goods and so on could could easily drop off a cliff. We could provide people with more or less anything that they want, uh, as long as we can deal with this constraint around the original resources. So it's this magical machine that can create everything that you want that has led people, who think this idea is less realistic and feasible, to call it the Santa Claus machine. And I hope that someday we'll do some episodes on nanotechnology and we can revisit this idea to see how feasible it is and how close we are to it at the moment. Um, Because there's every chance that people are working on this and finding that it's much more difficult than the futurists have predicted. Regardless of whether the Santa Claus machine could happen or not, though, things analogous to this will begin to happen when robotics, nanotechnology, and artificial intelligence becomes more advanced. You can imagine that vast amounts of human labour will be replaced by technology, just as happened when the combustion engine was invented. Now, what does this do? If it creates wealth for everyone, sufficiency for everyone, then you can imagine that there's less threat that any particular group or individual is going to want to destroy the world. Or, if society remains unequal, if access to this kind of abundant production is limited, and depending on what you want to make, the raw resources available could be an issue, then we can see issues arising from this. I mean, we're thinking about this in terms of this kind of technology democratising the production of consumer goods, 
but of course all more dangerous things could be done as well. When the 3D printer first started becoming prominent, one of the first things that terrified people was the blueprint for a 3D printed gun. Nowadays there are blueprints floating around on the internet for 3D printed AR-15s. Regulation, and maybe more pertinently any way of enforcing regulations on this technology, have already fallen far behind as our legislators struggle to deal with how you can actually ban this sort of thing. And although there are no records of any murders yet occurring with a 3D printed weapon, that doesn't rule it out. This is before you even get into the ideas that, for example, manipulation of biological uh, fabrics through CRISPR could allow you to bring back the uh, extinct viruses such as the horsepox virus, which was done by some Canadian researchers back in 2017. So all of this stuff is the idea that as you democratise this technology, you're giving power to more and more people. But this can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how stable your society is when you do this. All this stuff about some hypothetical Santa Claus machine in the far future might seem pretty abstract. Making predictions about what the world's going to look like in 100 years or, or 10 years seems almost impossible. But we can figure out, and we can try to figure out, what might happen along the way to whatever the future looks like by looking at what's happening now. How are the most recent, most foreseeable trends in technology interacting with inequality and catastrophic risks? Technology evangelists dream about a future where we're all liberated from the more boring aspects of our jobs by artificial intelligence. Other futurists go even further and imagine that AI will eventually enable us to become superhumans, enhancing our intelligence, abandoning our mortal bodies and uploading ourselves to the cloud. Paradise is all very well, although your mileage may vary on whether these scenarios are realistic or desirable. The real question is, how do you get there? The economist John Maynard Keynes, notably arguing in favour of active intervention when an economic crisis hits, rather than waiting for the markets to settle down to a more healthy equilibrium in the long run, he would always say to his critics, in the long run, we're all dead. If it takes 50 years of upheaval and economic chaos for things to return to normality, there's been an immense amount of human suffering first, and from my perspective, that's probably the rest of my life, so I don't really want to think about it from that perspective. And similar problems arise with the transition to a world where AI is intimately involved in our lives. In the long term, automating labour might benefit the human species immensely, but in the short term, it has all kinds of potential pitfalls, especially in exacerbating inequality within societies where AI takes on a larger role. The Institute for Public Policy Research uh, has deep concerns about the future of work. It's the latest in a long string after the Oxford report, which famously said that something like half of all jobs in industrialised societies like the US could be automated in the next 20 years. Incidentally, it's worth saying this isn't a new idea. This was something that uh, Keynes was talking about and that people have been talking about for 100 years that hasn't necessarily come true yet. And while that particular report is a really interesting read, we should obviously point out that just because the job has the technical potential to be automated, it doesn't mean that it necessarily will be automated. I mean, for example, if you're a futurist in the 1990s and you're looking at the potential for the internet, you might think that online learning courses are going to make a lot of teaching staff obsolete, but that actually hasn't happened as far as we can tell so far, although it might have seemed technically possible. Similarly, when the VHS was first developed, you might think, okay, all we need to do is now uh, record the one perfect lesson and all the students can just watch that and that will be all that you need, but it's a naive approach to things, so you have to uh, understand that there's a certain level of subjective judgment that goes into the decision whether a job has the potential to be automated or not. So this newer report, it didn't quite foresee the same doom and gloom of mass unemployment that the other commentators have considered, but the concerns that they had was that the gains in productivity and the economic benefits from AI will end up being unevenly distributed. In the UK, jobs that account for £290 billion worth of wages in today's economy could potentially be automated with today's technology. 
but these are disproportionately jobs held by people who are already suffering from inequality in the society. Low-wage jobs are five times more likely to be automated than high-wage jobs. A greater proportion of jobs held by women are likely to be automated, according to this report. The solution that's often provided is that people should simply retrain, but if no funding or assistance is provided, this burden is too much to bear. You can't expect people to seamlessly transition from driving taxis to writing self-driving car software without help. And you can even imagine, if you're very optimistic about the progress of technology, that you could shift from one career that gets automated to another career that gets automated and continue along those lines um, and end up having to retrain five or six times in the course of a career. Douglas Coupland, who, uh, as well as writing fiction, analyses how society changes a lot, has uh, written in his most recent book, Bit Rot, that he expects that the next generation is going to be mostly made up of freelancers who have a jack-of-all-trades type skill because there's just no stable employment available for them. And I think we can see trends like this continuing to take place all over the place. And as we've seen in our societies already, uh, inequality is exacerbated when the jobs that don't require advanced education, even if they do require a great deal of technical skill, are the first to go. Now, the optimists say that AI algorithms won't replace humans, but will instead liberate us from the dull parts of our jobs. Lawyers used to have to spend hours trawling through case law to find legal precedents. Now AI can identify the most relevant documents for them. Doctors don't need to look through endless scans and perform diagnostic tests. Machines can do this, leaving the decision-making to the human. And this boosts productivity and provides invaluable tools for workers. That's the argument. But there are issues with this rosy picture. If humans need to do less work, the economic incentive is for the boss to reduce their hours and their wages too. If in this dream scenario, advances in automation allow one person to do the work of three, by ensuring that the dull and routine tasks are no longer necessary, then chances are a couple of people are going to be out of a job. Meanwhile, our employee, who's now line managing a series of algorithms, is probably not earning three times the wage they did before. So the benefits of this increased productivity through technology end up somewhere else, perhaps with the technology companies who are selling their software as a service to these individuals, or perhaps simply with the employer who uh, you know, reduces the total wage outgoings and increases the total wages of the company. So, of these dull routine parts of the job, I mean, some of these were traditionally how people getting into the field learned the ropes. Paralegals used to look through case law, but AI might render them obsolete. Even in the field of journalism, there's now software that will rewrite press releases for a publication, which was traditionally something close to an entry-level task. So if you're actually cutting away at these entry-level jobs, even in uh, professions that might not be automated in their entirety themselves, or if entry-level now requires years of training, the result is to exacerbate inequality and reduce social mobility. And actually, you've made it much harder for people to retrain and move into other fields because you've taken away all of the entry-level learning-the-rope type jobs that they could have hoped to get in the first place to help them fund that training. And in fact, some people argue that the mere perception of automation and AI is such a big thing allows some leeway for wages to stagnate. Essentially, if your employer can argue that you're replaceable by a robot, you're going to be in a weaker position to negotiate your wages with them even if the technology isn't actually ready yet. Ultimately, and again, I think it's important to stress that this isn't a prescription for Luddism. The classic counter-argument to this is that, in the past, automation has never led to masses of people being long-term unemployed, because new industries crop up to replace the old. Now, this is certainly true to an extent. And it would be ridiculous to say that, for example, because a computer means there's no need for accountants to laboriously add up rows of figures, that we should smash our PCs and keep them in work adding up those rows of figures. But it's crucial to be mindful of what can happen if we're not careful, especially in the short term, and especially as this thing accelerates beyond what we're expecting. 
Another more pernicious aspect of the problem is the way that algorithms, when deployed irresponsibly, can entrench inequalities that already exist. The adoption of algorithms into employment has already had negative impacts on equality. We talked about this in the malicious use of AI episode. Cathy O'Neill, the mathematics PhD from Harvard, raises these concerns in her excellent Weapons of Maths Destruction. She notes that algorithms designed by humans often encode the biases of that society, whether they're racial or based on gender or whatever. Google's search engine advertises more executive-level jobs to users it thinks are male. AI programs predict that black offenders are more likely to reoffend than white offenders, and they receive correspondingly longer sentences. It needn't necessarily be that bias has been actively programmed. All that the algorithms might be doing is learning from the historical data, but that means they'll perpetuate historical inequalities. The candidate screening software HireVue is a good example of this. It's used by many major corporations now to assess new employees. And it analyses verbal and non-verbal cues of candidates by taking a video of them answering some questions, and it compares them to employees that have historically done well at the company. Either way, though, according to Cathy O'Neill, they're using people's fear and trust of mathematics to prevent them from asking questions. With no transparency or understanding of how the algorithm generates its results, and no consensus over who's responsible for the results, discrimination can occur automatically on a massive scale. Note that HireVue can only compare to the historical data. This is what most of these algorithms do to a certain extent. They examine vast quantities of previously obtained data to try and make predictions about the future. Now that normally works well, but as any machine learning scientist will tell you, if you try and get them to predict something that's outside what they've been trained on, the results can vary wildly. Some of these are trying to predict human behaviour. An ex-Google employee once observed, the finest minds of my generation devoted themselves to figuring out how to get people to click on ads. In some cases, as with climate models and certain kinds of economic model, the predictions are bolstered by laws. The laws of physics, for example, tell us that if you heat up the world by a thousand degrees Celsius, then the oceans will boil, even if we've never seen it happen. But even then, they depend strongly on what's happened before, on understanding and predicting historical patterns. And this exacerbates the inequality existential risks link for two reasons. Firstly, they can't predict black swan events. An algorithm in charge of security will find it difficult to hypothesise about something that could happen if it's never happened before. What you need then is people who have the foresight and the understanding of their field to say, yes, this unprecedented type of event could happen and it could cause these damaging effects. In fact, it was this precise failure that led to the algorithms failing in the financial crisis of 2007-2008. You probably know by now that this was caused in part by subprime mortgages, mortgages sold to people who couldn't afford to pay them back, which were bundled up into assets and sold zillions of times over on the financial markets. It was assumed these assets were safe because, historically, people didn't default on their mortgages much, and they certainly didn't do it en masse. Any algorithm that was applied to evaluate the worth of a particular group of mortgages just wasn't prepared for an unprecedented number of people to fail to pay those mortgages. They couldn't predict the black swan event, even though a human who looked at the situation on the ground might be able to. And if you've seen the big short, you'll know that some of them did. Similarly, they encode historical biases. If the arrest rate is higher for black people in your district due to historical racism or economic factors, the algorithms are going to encode that bias. If you put an algorithm in charge of deploying police resources and tell it to deploy the most resources where the most arrests take place, then don't be surprised if the most arrests continue to take place where the police are most present. The more these algorithms are put in charge of the world, the more likely they are to exacerbate and perpetuate inequality. And if we accept what they give us in an unquestioning way, then we'll be in trouble. And what is the big technological hype about at the moment? 
what is the top of the Gartner technological hype cycle, the buzzword that's been plaguing everyone for the last few years? Well, it's, it's, it's big data. O'Neill puts it best. First, she describes how, through her work as a quant, she worked on algorithms to try and predict and make beneficial trades in the financial markets. And these are algorithms that she blames for exacerbating the 2007-8 financial crisis. Instead of a retreat, though, the algorithms advanced. She says, quote, The algorithms churn 24-7 through petabytes of information, much of it scraped from social media and e-commerce websites. Increasingly, they focus not just on the movements of the financial markets, but on us. Mathematicians and statisticians were predicting our potential as students, workers, lovers, criminals. This was the big data economy, and it promised spectacular gains. Yet I saw trouble. The math-powered applications powering the data economy were based on choices by fallible human beings. Like gods, these mathematical models were opaque, their workings invisible to all but the highest priests in their domain, mathematicians and computer scientists. Their verdicts, even when wrong or harmful, were beyond dispute or appeal, and they tended to punish the poor and oppressed in our society while making the rich richer. She describes how a society with more of these algorithms can trap people into a terrible feedback loop. There's the case of the Washington school teachers who used an algorithm to fire the worst performing 5% of staff, according to a statistically insignificant metric based on a small sample of students' performance on a single test. In this particular case, one teacher had strong reason to suspect that because these standardised test scores now controlled the future of the teachers, the teachers were going to start lying on those standardised test scores and reporting incorrect data. There's the case of the employers who judge potential employees by their credit rating. The reasonable idea here is that if you pay your bills, you're probably the reliable and responsible adult who will turn up to work on time and perform diligently. But if you don't fit that paradigm, if you got unlucky, which in the US especially often means you had to pay some extortionate medical bills at some point, then you're trapped in a feedback loop. Bad credit rating, less chance of good employment, less chance of improving that credit rating. The historical bias against you as an individual is perpetuated by these algorithms. One of the main points O'Neill makes is that these feedback loops can be even further exacerbated when the algorithm gets to evaluate its own success. After all, it will report, I have successfully filtered out 28 bad employees, I have optimised all of my metrics, and so on. In other words, the terrifying dream of the paperclip maximising AI, that analogy that an artificial intelligence could unstoppably seek to maximise some goal that's completely misaligned with our goals, such as making paperclips, it's actually present in algorithms and present in artificial intelligence. In just the same way as many would argue the point of a good education isn't to maximise test scores, that when a measure of success becomes the definition of success, it's no longer a good measure. Algorithms that reduce people to strings of numbers in a spreadsheet, as well as being philosophically distasteful, can also perform terribly and unaccountably, and then tell you that they've done a good job. At the same time, when numbers influence so much of our lives, our credit scores, the rankings for our universities and colleges, the data-driven approach to hiring and firing, the GDP that everyone seeks to maximise when they run the economy. They motivate people to behave like that paperclip maximizer, which dumbly seeks to maximise a single number, rather than doing something productive and wise. After all, if you're focused on maximising the ranking of your college, the search engine optimization of your website or article, etc, etc, then you're not necessarily doing the best job that you can. You're just maximising a metric. You might even game the system to do it. I mean, one example in journalism is the countless people now who appear to have made a career just out of coming up with the most controversial, the most acidic, the most toxic, the most outrageous takes on any given issue 
just because the only incentive for them is not to say something clever, or even that they necessarily believe, but simply to maximise clicks and ad revenue. This was always present, but once you have the algorithms in place perpetuating it and reducing any semblance of human oversight, then you're, you're driving these incorrect, misaligned motivators to control the behaviour of people even more. And if you're just seeking to maximise a metric, you might even game the system to do it. And then whoever decides the rules that go into that algorithm has enormous power. The things that go into that model, the proxies that get used for achievement, they can become more important than anything that's not included in those proxies. And this kind of automation disproportionately affects poor or disadvantaged people because they're the ones most likely to be evaluated by this kind of system. They're the ones least likely to be able to game the system or benefit from simple metrics that measure its success. Person A is born rich, gets all the best education, and takes IQ tests every day as a hobby, and scores 145. Person B is born to illiterate parents, has never even seen an IQ test, but is a keen autodidact and incredibly hard worker who teaches themselves everything they know and scores 144. It's obvious, at least to me, which person you'd rather have on your team, not from the IQ score. But person B might never find out what they get rejected, and the people who are assessing them might never find out all of that contextual information. Perhaps the worst aspect is that the black box nature of these algorithms means you'll probably never find out what you did wrong, or how to fix it. We're all just ending up as numbers in a spreadsheet column, and very few people know how these numbers are even calculated. And in all likelihood, the explanation doesn't exist, because no human has ever untangled it. So, so far we've discussed the potential for technology to exacerbate inequality in our society, and we've discussed how unequal societies can lead to more existential risks, or catastrophes uh, have this interplay with existential risks and inequality. And um, bringing together these three ideas, I want to next try and talk about possible solutions to the problem that might show up in the next episode. So until next time, take care, and I'll speak to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find our website, www.physicspodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter, that's physicspod. On the website, you'll find a contact form uh, that goes through to my email. I try and respond to every email that people send me, particularly if it makes sense. So that's a really great place to come with any questions, comments, concerns, anything you'd like the show to cover, uh, anything that you'd like us to do in the future, all that sort of thing. Um, please do send us an email there. It's always nice to hear from you. And the best thing I think you can do to help the show out is just to tell as many people who might want to listen to it to go ahead and listen to it if you've enjoyed it, if you think it's worthwhile. We have all the usual things. There's a PayPal link you can get to to donate to us on the Twitter. There's a Patreon, all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's up to you what you want to do with that. Um, the most important thing is to get the word out and have some more listeners. So until next time, take care.